Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. And I'm Dominic Grace with my assistant, Mary. <laughs> and I'm my cat. Meow. <laughs> and I am Eric Hoffman. And we are continuing our look at the films of the great Akira Kurosawa with two of his greatest films, I think it's fair to say, The Hidden Fortress and Rashomon. I thought we would start with Hidden Fortress. Because on the surface, anyway, it's a lighter film, but there is so much in this film to make it fun, praiseworthy, interesting. It's a film that I just found so delightful from beginning to end, but still so weighted in like great, interesting themes that give it a, a power, majesty, and energy. So that the filmmaking is gorgeous. The cinematography is astounding. Um, it may be one of the best looking black and white films we've oh, yeah. ever seen. Although we discussed so many of other Kurosawa's other black and white films. So <laughs> they're all amazing. Yeah. He, I, I continue to be blown away revisiting Kurosawa. And again, and this is another one where I, I'm revisiting one I hadn't seen in years and years. So it's really, it's really cool to get back to it. And yeah, just so much about his visual um, repertoire is stunning, but I mean, one of the things that I, I remember when I saw this film when it, I don't know, 40 years ago, I really enjoyed it for sure. Um, but I, 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 I think I enjoyed it a lot more this time. And I think one of the things I did think when I first saw it was because I, I, I I'd just come off seeing Akira and Seven Samurai and stuff like that. And I saw The Hidden Fortress and it's like, yeah, it's, it's, it's good, but it doesn't have the art of those films. Um, and I got to say, 40 years later, I'm really questioning that kind of judgment. Because one of the things I found myself thinking, rewatching it, and then reading some of the stuff about it that I read afterwards was it it seemed by a lot of people to have been dismissed as secondary Kurosawa because it's just entertainment. You know, it's just a rollicking, entertaining adventure and doesn't really have any. Well, it does. <laughs> um, it's certainly much more of a rollicking, entertaining adventure than a lot of his other movies are. But is it really more of a rollicking, entertaining movie than Yojimbo or Seven Samurai? I don't think it is. It Those are just as much. Uh, I mean, mind you, Seven Samurai has a whole extra hour of stuff in it. But those are both also very much films driven by the expectations of, of the action genre. Um, and I'm not sure why this one doesn't seem to get the same kind of recognition that uh, that being a great action adventure movie doesn't therefore mean that you're not a great movie, period. Because it is, I think. <laughs> so there. <laughs> <laughs> there's some there's some really uh, wonderful performances in this film. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, per particularly by the the two uh the two uh comedic elements uh, yeah. the two protagonists of the film really uh who are <clears throat> comic relief but also the stars interestingly enough yeah the the, the mutton jeff guys yeah yeah the r2d2 so and c3po he's guys already kurosawa is already them. playing the convention there because he's making what should have been these um you know, kind of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern sort of uh, supporting characters into the leads of the film, which is interesting in and of itself. Uh, yeah, and that's, sorry, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. An action film that's being carried 
more or less by two bumbling idiots <laughs> for the most yeah. part. Yeah, uh, but but that that I think is also part of what makes it interesting. You know, Tahai uh, Matashichi. One of the things I was thinking about rewatching it because the first time I saw this film. I hadn't heard of all the Star Wars connections, right? So I wasn't making the connections only retroactively that I did or retrospectively that I did. So watching it again now, I was more alive to that. And one of the things that I found watching it is, yeah, sure. I can see that there are broad stroke echoes there. But uh, these two guys are radically different from C-3PO and R2-D2, Tahai and, and Matashichi. They're much more complex um, and much more to use a you know a, a popular modern term problematic mm-hmm. right i mean they literally try to rape the princess at one point in the film um it's dark these are uh these are morally really compromised guys um and one of the you know through lines in the film that i was really noticing watching it is that that's just a pattern for them. Every time things turn back in their favor, they're right back to stabbing each other in the back and betraying each other um, and consistently making things worse through you know, selfishness and venality and, 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 and greed. Right? Almost every problem that comes up in the film comes up because of something one of those two Nimrods does. Right? And when good uh, things happen, it's really kind of just by dumb luck, like when they discover the gold inside the wood. Yeah. Um, and to me, that uh, that ties in very much with a lot of what we, we see as a through line in Kurosawa's work, where he, he's commenting on, you know, things like, you know, character is destiny um, and your your fate is determined by the choices that you make and the, the positions that you're in. And, you know, just because the image of, uh, I forget the character's name, but the the blind character in um, in Ren, where the final time we see him is like standing on the edge of the the cliff and he could step off and die just because you have that sort of really obviously profound cinematic representation of that idea in that film um and it played as like an abbott and costello routine in this film doesn't make this version of it any less of a profound in any in some ways it makes it more immediate and 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 relatable uh, commentary on the extent to which um you know the the existentialists skewing towards nihilist perspective that we often get in kurosawa where he really um he almost always has hope in his films, but where he really takes a very close, hard look at just exactly how much trouble we get into because of our own limitations and failures and 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 fundamental immoralities, right? It's 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 all there uh, in that film, in those it's two also, brilliant performances. Sorry, go ahead. Also, oh no, uh, it's also part and parcel with his his uh, resistance to over idealizing the peasantry. Yeah. You know? Uh, yeah. They're not salt of the earth. <laughs> right. No, just the opposite. Exactly. Just the opposite. That said, they're also given very understandable reasons, right? I mean, we don't see it, but at the beginning of the film, we learn out the gate. These are guys that literally gave up their lives, right? To go and fight for, uh, for their clan, to go and fight for what they believed in. And what happened to them? They got oh, totally hosed mm-hmm. um, and end up as slaves with literally nothing. Um, you know, it's that goes a long way towards explaining why, you know, you might not be uh, 
a model of virtue in, in the same way that the well again you know to the more seriously serious film in the same way that you know the farmers in in seven samurai are exposed about halfway through the film right they have all this armor and stuff hidden under the floorboards because they've killed samurai whenever they can get the chance you know they're not um just downtrodden victims that are that are you know we, we should sympathize with they have their own darknesses and complexities um that are are culturally situated in 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 the in the very difficult world that they live in well that's I right and, to what and, extent go ahead oh. go ahead Eric. Well, i wonder to what extent those characters were an exploration of the the post-war uh japan yeah really you know, good point uh experience that kurosawa and had just come through i mean this film came out in 1956 so just over a decade after the end of the war, it was 56, correct? Or 57? Uh, I've got 59 in my head for some reason, but I could be wrong. I, 50, I've actually, I've got a window here I can 58 check. 58 is the year that IMDb has yeah. for it. Yeah, okay, so just yeah. Over, yeah so, so just over a decade after the end of the war. So I wondered to what extent it was an exploration of how post-war Japan, uh, the desperation of post-war Japan led to a, you know, a detrimental effect on morality. Of course, we know the-, the Among the lower classes, right? Which yeah. he had explored at length in earlier films. Yeah, you know, I was gonna say, the, we, the, know he, we, we know he cares yeah. a lot about this, right? From the yeah. Sounds People in Ikiru, which is four movies ahead of this, through the yeah. Villagers and Se Seven Samurai, which is three movies ahead of this, to the way the war affects the, uh, the, the, industrialist and I live in fear to the despair at the end of throne of blood and then the uh poverty and disruptiveness of the lives of the folks in lower depths so, I mean those are the movies that came right before hidden fortress so there was a lot and then right after this going is the all best the way back to well. drunken going all the way back to drunken angel as well mm -hmm. yeah and stray dog yeah so this is something he really He's always exploring, right? There's no way it can get out of his mind, really, because that's the society he lives in, right? Um, and nothing is quite what it seems. There's always a bit of shifting viewpoints. There's always this idea that uh, people have their own motivations for uh, doing the things that that they decide to do, uh, and that you know often just the the continual striving for mindless self preservation that these two characters have uh, is just who they are. Uh, there's almost a sense of like intrinsically intrinsic nature of characters because mm -hmm. we see this also um well they don't change but we see it in princess yuki mm -hmm. when she does change we'll, we'll get to her more i think as we go on here um because you know, she's this imperious uh tough princess beautifully performed by misa uehura uh, and when they go into the town and she rescues the prostitute yeah, uh, yes. This is a woman who's so far below her; she should barely pay attention to her. But she does take mercy on her, so she changes. Uh, I think it's a it's questionable whether Rokuruda changes the Mafune character, but um, he's certainly such a powerful force in this film. Oh um, yeah, but, but um, really, it's uh, it's Tahe Matsuichi. So easy for me to say, who don't change at all. There's there's no sign of them evolving beyond that same kind of oh my god we're we're in the middle of this war kind of scene we see them in the very beginning of the film. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you on that actually, because I, I was when I, I didn't I don't have notes, but I, I I was looking at some stuff you know before talking about this, and I've come across some some readings that sort of suggest that by the end of the film they've like you know they've had an arc and they they when they walk away with the single reel they have between them and they're they're laughing that you know now that they've they've learned their lesson and they're going to go on. I find myself thinking I don't know I'm thinking if the camera kept on following them for five more minutes, yeah, mm-hmm. that would change. I don't. It doesn't seem to me to be you know. Um, the, the that unqualified optimism of the, these guys have learned their lesson and they've they found that out and they're going to be good boys and it's all going to be happily ever after it's certainly you know it's a, it's a, it's a positive conclusion right everyone everyone has succeeded but I, it never it never came across to me that i'm sure the first time i watched it and certainly the second time that yeah that that's the reading to take away from it it struck me as an entirely fatalistic ending yeah mm-hmm. that's more about that well, I mean, <clears throat> right. So they're given sort of this hero's uh, <laughs> this hero's celebration at the end of the film, but it doesn't seem to have any real effect on them, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> doesn't, seem of... to have, doesn't seem to have improved their moral certitude whatsoever. You know, they're they're just back to sort of desperately grasping at whatever um, comes their way. You know, just after the film, he he could have ended the film with that celebratory scene with, you know, where they're given that heroic sort of send off. But he decided to tack on that denouement. And it was just kind of like, I think, very intentional on his part to uh, to sort of undercut the so-called heroism of these two characters. In the Star Wars analogy, it's as if uh, we got an extra scene after they get the medals. Yeah, and we, see, yeah. And we see Han and exactly. Chewie go and have to commit some sort of grift against somebody. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy. Um, although, I, again, watching it, I, I did recognize the Star Wars things, but I found that a lot less than I was expecting, given that yeah. the, how much you hear about how much Star Wars uh, owes to this film. I um, think earlier drafts of Star Wars were a little bit closer to yeah. the importance. Yeah. So much so that Lucas was considering trying to uh, acquire the rights mm. to Kurosawa's film and have it essentially be a science fiction adaptation of that film. But uh, he changed it enough that I think probably he and his lawyers were comfortable with moving forward without having to acquire the rights, I guess, because it was sort of general enough. Well, I mean, a... it, certainly, it certainly doesn't come across as, as, as the way that like, like the Magnificent Seven does, for instance. Right. Which, you know, much as I do think the Magnificent Seven is a, is a great film, it's yeah. pretty obviously... <laughs> It leans, it leans more toward homage in my mind. Yeah, yeah. honestly, there's enough Oma- difference. Homage is a good word to use for it. Well, Princess, yeah. Princess Yuki is different from Princess Leia. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, and I mean, there's, uh, there's, you can find, you know, you can you can make the analogies to the characters, sure. right? And uh, you know, um, but they're i'm not sure they're any more strong than the kind of general analogies you can make between archetypal character types across across mm-hmm. films, right. right you know uh sure the princess and princess leia but they're all also both part of a a pattern themselves right yeah uh well of and, himself would say they're all part yeah. of the larger yeah uh, intellectual tradition right yeah he of all people would know that being both a student of classical japan and of shakespeare right yeah, and I mean there there are even like visual things in the film that I think invite those kind of correlations, and 
I know I always harp on the visual when we talk about Kurosawa, but I, I just can't help it. And I have to say that um, Mifune's first appearance in this film, there are lots of great first appearances in films. This one has to be way up on the list. I just love that the foreground of our two mutton Jeffs are having their little, one of their stupid little squabbles and, whoop, and they're, you notice them a split second before they do, this guy standing between the rocks in that arms crossed, legs akimbo pose. And it's like, bam, now we're in a different movie, right? Um, but Princess Yuki echoes the exact same pause, pose later in the film, right? Mm-hmm. So Kurosawa is clearly, you know, well, I mean, we know this from our conversation, but he, he's clearly playing with, you know, things like traditional stances and poses to communicate certain kinds of things. So it's simultaneously, here's a new character, but it's also a character that we know a lot about him just because he fits a certain kind of pattern. Yeah, and, and the magnetism of Mifune also oh, yeah, just draws yeah. your eyes to him. Yeah, it's just a great shot. Well, I need no shorter. It was a great shot. I love that shot. Yeah, on the DVD commentary, the, there's a lot of comment about the brilliance of Kurosawa's widescreen compositions. Mm-hmm. This was the first film he, he created in widescreen, but it was as if he had this deep knowledge of how to create compositions inside that framework. Oh, sure. It didn't look uh, like it didn't look like a you know a beginner's any any more than Tedesco Den looks like someone who's ever used color before. <laughs> Right. No, and I think that's the one of the most amazing things is this masterful use of the the full screen here. So many scenes where, especially at the fortress, where you have the two characters kind of in opposition to each other, or the scene yeah. you were just talking about, right? It they kind of form a triangle inside the larger screen, where yeah. the full screen is used to, to such tremendous effect in that moment. It's interesting yeah. you mentioned triangle because there's so many uses of triangulization in this film. Yeah. Uh, both thematic, thematically and visually. Um, you know, uh, uh, one of the more obvious examples is where they're all sort of chained up uh, <laughs> toward the end of the film when the, uh, the general from uh, Mifune's past reappears, the Darth Vader sort of character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you with know, the with uh, the scar standing in for the Darth Vader helmet, yeah. Right, with the scar <laughs> yeah. standing in for the Darth Vader helmet, correct. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, I mean, there's countless examples of it, but there's, there's uh, lots of different repetitions of three. I noticed throughout the film, there's often three characters on on uh, within frame uh, within the film. Uh, there's there's essentially three acts to the film as well. Yep, I noticed. Uh, oh, so yeah. it's it's. It's very, it's, it, it, you talk about Dominic action films mm-hmm. and, you know, um, yeah, oh, it's often sort of tossed aside. Well, it's just, you know, it's a good action film, whatever. But no, yeah. uh, there was actually quite a bit of typical Kurosawa thought and uh, care and attention to detail that went into this film. Uh, it, just as much in this film as any of his others, really. Oh, and, and the action and, scenes in this film are. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, the, the the battle on the staircase, for example, mm-hmm. alone, the, which, yeah, or the spear fight, which must go on for like ten minutes or something. It's right. really elaborately staged um, mm-hmm. and choreographed, and uh, and it's a long shot where there's very yeah. few cuts in it. Lots of long shots and lots of continuous takes, and that's that's one of my pet peeves about a lot of action movies um, is they try to create the sense of of tension and movement through a lot of cuts right um and kurosawa i I think understands that very frequently you get a much better 
an impact on the audience if you allow us to see the motion as opposed to having the illusion of emotion created by, you know, cut, 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 right? Um, so we watch them for, for, for these long shots moving around. That, I mean, that, that obviously had to be massively rehearsed mm -hmm. um, to get all those moves uh, in there. But it's, it's worth it because you just get, in my opinion, again, a much more uh, effective, uh, a much more impactful, a much more um, exciting result if the audience knows they're looking at actual continuous action um and that it's they can tell that it's the actors who were actually doing it right which you can because mm -hmm. you could there it's, it's well it's especially in the theater it's widescreen it's huge they're going to be 40 feet tall of course you're going to be able to tell it's them um but i mean that's got to be uh and, and the, the bar here is high that's got to be you know a couple of kurosawa's best action sequences the, the staircase and uh and, and that and that spear fight you can actually see in this film the first instances of Kurosawa's masterful use of large sets and mm. uh, uh, large casts, like uh, yeah. uh, of extras, for example. Yeah. Uh, like in the battle sequences later on in Kagamusha or in Ron, mm -hmm. which are so elaborately staged, you can see that uh, sort of, you know, uh, first iteration of that in this film. Yes. Yeah. I was just trying to figure out how he coordinated the scenes on the on the stairs with the thousands of people running up and down. Basically, from the enti entire time they get captured to the entire time they are left behind. It's like a 15 minute sequence. There's yeah. massive crowds and massive action happening there. Again, later on, too, when they are at the fire festival and he stays yeah. musical number. This elaborate musical number that no. required coordinating 250, <laughs> yeah. 300, 400 people. And they're oh, moving in circles around one another oh, and yeah, moving in different yeah. directions. And oh, yeah. And the actors, so, and we, he keeps the camera on our actors. We see yep. the distress and frustration and joy on their faces all at the same time. Right. This is, this is where uh, I think Misa Irahura, uh, I was totally mangled her name, is so good. That the princess, oh, yeah. you can read the, the whole mixed emotion on the princess's face in just a beautiful way in that sequence. Yeah, and the way that they're looking at one another as well and trying to sort of gauge one another's reactions. And there's this sort of unspoken <laughs> exchange that's taking place. Uh, you know, Mifune's character, of course, he's so cool, calm, and collected because he knows, hey, you know, I know it's burning. I know the gold is burning, but we can always come back later and dig it Absolutely. up. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. It's it's gold. It's not gonna it's not gonna burn. It's just gonna, it's gonna burn. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, so he's he's like cool with it. You know, he's just like, well, we'll just go along with this until the time is right, and then we'll go back in and grab the gold. And you know, the uh, of course the mutton Jeff as Dominic so accurately refers to them. They're they're just completely beside themselves <laughs> oh and that uh, that <laughs> particular yeah yeah they can't even plan anything right i mean they're their whole <laughs> the, mind is on short centered the particular that particular sequence right after that where they go back and they get as as much gold as they can get right and they sure. literally cannot carry what they have and yet right. they still turn around and go back and get more i mean that is that's dead-on commentary right. on, you know, a, a profound human failing, right? I mean, you literally cannot carry any more away, but you can't stand leaving any of it behind. And consequently, you end up with none of it. Not to mention there's, they hear people coming, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> they need to be getting out of there. 
and you know yeah but i actually thought of a uh, like a dog in a sequence like that where the dog just can't stop eating the food that tastes so delicious until they get sick right yeah because because they have no like ability to say enough is enough (laughs) yeah but it's it's such an accurate commentary though not just on you know primal animal behavior but human behavior right Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean this is a, a trivial example a couple of days ago i was in uh value village or a place like that where they have like you know wall full of like cheap cds right and there's this woman like she's spending like 800 years at the wall and i think when are you going to get away i want to look at these i want to look at these right and she's taking one and putting it in her and she's looking she's like getting a pile of them and i'm getting increasingly i want to go in and get them too that's <laughs> like and then i'm thinking wait a minute what am i doing what is this just because some other person is you know grabbing all this stuff and and really wants it why is that why does that spike this thing in me what is it what, it's, what does it speak to? And what it speaks to is, you know, <laughs> a pretty negative aspect of human nature, right? Oh, that looks like it's something that people want. I better get me some of it too, right? I mean, I think one of the interesting things is speculate. If there's only one of those two guys, he'd have been perfectly fine. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. They spur each other on. Yeah. Well, they do. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. And, Sorry to blather and on And more like and that. more because they've been... <laughs> What allies for so long? I'm not sure if you can even call them friends. Uh, they're continually yeah. spurring each other on. Like they they have this kind of rivalry between them that just is ne- is insatiable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Part of it is you just can't stand the thought of somebody else having something that you don't have. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, it's like, it's, it's it it goes back to your comment before, Erica, about you know fatalism, right? It's just, right. it's inevitable, right? It's, it's, it's lizard brain stuff that just takes over and it's inevitable. You can't, you can't, you can't, well, what Kurosawa is showing is it's, it's exceedingly difficult to escape it. Um, and the, one of the interesting things about the film though, is it does show alternatives. I mean, I, one of the things I thought was fascinating was, you know, the princess um, shows that she can, right? Uh, at the, the first time we see her, she's self-willed and you know, the, the generals, we're going to have to try reverse psychology on her to get her to do what we want her to do. And she sees through that and she still says, screw you. I'm going to do it anyway, just to prove to you that I can. Mm-hmm. And she does. And as you were pointing out earlier, Jason, it leads to that sequence where she, you know, sees the lower class life. And this itself is a standard trope, right? You know, like Henry V going out among the troops and in, in, in Henry V in disguise, right? Um, she sees it from from the peasant's view. Uh and it it changes her attitude towards the people that she's supposed to govern, um, and it's it's only a gesture. I'm going to save this one person, but she does, right? Um, so the film isn't completely nihilistic or fatalistic, and that doesn't suggest that we are completely slaves to those those things. But I think it does suggest that it's awful damn hard to get away from them. I love the the peasant the 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 the, the, prost- the, the woman that she saves basically then you know like returning the favor and saving the princess from rape it's just brilliant yeah that's the scene that really just shows their baseness yeah their inability to to become to be anything other than these almost animalistic creatures yeah i completely go ahead well they don't they don't manage to survive by any dint of intelligence or you know Mm. uh (laughs) It's all just blind luck. I mean, I think of that really great scene uh, in the film where you're you're behind them and they're walking through the field, and then um, 
they hear something behind them and you you can't see what it is that they're seeing they turn and you you only see their expression and reaction to what is approaching them and this guy runs up and he ends up getting like uh i don't know an arrow in the back or something like that he falls down right between the two of them and these horses ride in and they blow right by him i mean like you know oh yeah just just the fact that they weren't like hit with arrows or run over by a horse you know <laughs> and it just happens time and time again with these guys you know I, I always thought um you know whatever you want to say about star wars it was a great sort of visual representation of that in that scene where c-3po and r2d2 are going across the hall and all yeah. those laser blasters are just <laughs> flying by them and they're not getting hit by a single one of them you know um meanwhile everybody else is getting shot and falling over dying um you know it, it, that's just that, uh, uh, again, uh, that kind of like, I don't know, uh, existentialism. I keep going back on that. Maybe I lean on it a little too much, but uh, there is there is a, an element of chance, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in one's fate. Uh, it, not everything is... Uh, not everything is a result of your choices. There, there is such a thing as blind luck. There is such a thing as, as you know, stumbling into greatness as these <laughs> these two guys mm -hmm. do. Yeah, that's actually a really interesting point because I mean, the one good idea they have is actually what saves their lives mm -hmm. because their idea of how to you know get home. You know, with the later, you know, the generals having the, you know, the little confab, and he says, "I'm just going to kill him." But then they had this idea, <laughs> right? They have that right. long scene where they're drawing this yeah. whole sketch, almost to, like too much of it in a yeah. way. Yeah, Kurosawa is good at making long movies, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but this one flies by to me. It does. Actually, one of the, my biggest laughs watching this movie was I think we're about an hour and a half into it, and then we finally get to our Kurosawa rainstorm. <laughs> ah, yeah. I actually laughed. I thought, there it is. We got to it. <laughs> this was, uh, interestingly enough, for all of the heaviness, I mean, we, we've spoken about all of these, yeah. you know, like major uh, themes mm -hmm. uh, that are presented in this film. It really is, in many ways, a comedy. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and kind of a comedy of errors. Yeah which is interesting and certainly very different from anything Kurosawa made before. And I would say since it's sort of an outlier in his, in his uh, body of work, I think. Yeah, I take, I take your point. It is interesting to me how often Kurosawa can basically go back to the same well and yet bring up something totally different from it. Right. Well, I mean, even, even your Jimbo and Sanjuro, which are in some ways the same movie over again are also right. radically different in, in other ways yeah and and those films arguably have a degree uh, have comedic elements to them as well yeah mm -hmm. but i i i hesitate to to, to call them comedies oh no they're not, they're not yeah. Is, yeah. yeah but they <laughs> Whereas both this have... film is like a, a blatantly has blatantly comedic elements to it yeah it's not not adventure film right it's kind of like romancing the stone is yeah 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 <laughs> yeah exactly i think it's a great analogy for it yeah but the characters yeah. are so well formed and the cinematography again is just i keep coming back to that because i'm just so 
I was just so deeply impressed by the way he filmed this movie. Right. And, and, and just the, the way that he kept the, the close in, the medium and the long in focus repeatedly in yeah. a way that really just gave you this enormous sense of scale. Mm-hmm. This is a big world these characters live in. Yeah. And, you know, from this point forward, I think he really embraced this idea of scale. It's part of what I love so much about high and low is he has the same idea of large scale, only it's against this urban environment, which yeah. illustrates so much of like the layers of human existence. Yeah, it's so great to see him go widescreen because to be honest, the second time I saw Seven Samurai, I started watching it. I'm thinking, wait a minute, shouldn't this be widescreen? Yeah. Because <laughs> I mean, even though it wasn't, he, that sense of grandeur and scale was so strong that I'd actually converted it into widescreen in my head. Mm-hmm. So to see him actually go to widescreen and really take advantage of everything you can do with it, with this film is it's really, it's great. It's cool. So hidden fortress is extremely large scale film. Mm-hmm. Whereas Rashomon, I would argue is one of his smallest scale films. Yes. Extremely economical. Yeah. Extremely by comparison. There's so what, like six actors in it? Seven right. actors in it? Yeah. Three sets. Just about 90 minutes. Yes, it proves that Kurosawa could, if he wanted to, make a short movie. <laughs> but again, it's just as long as it needs to be and not yeah. anymore. True. But he also compensated for making a short movie by making it literally rain from the beginning of the to the end of this one. <laughs> <laughs> so well, dramatically, the they one. added... Ink yeah. it's so economical that it's so economical that some of the characters of the film don't even appear on the screen and don't even yeah. have any lines yeah yeah that was one of the things i had forgotten about it and it really fascinated me watching it this time i had completely forgotten that not only do we never see the judges we never even hear them it's like you know a point of view video on youtube or something where the person is pretending that they're talking to someone and only doing one side of the dialogue and i was thinking that, what a fascinating choice pardon me you be the judge. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Literally putting us in the judge's shoes. Yeah. yeah. Putting us in the judges. Yeah. And the characters are addressing the camera, essentially. Yeah. And yeah. Breaking the fourth wall for the most part. Yeah, which is pretty bold choice, I think. I would say so. You know, this movie came out in 1950, right? So it's 70 years old. Mm-hmm. And the number one thing I think about, I thought about watching it was how fresh it still feels mm-hmm. and how real the, the Rashomon effect is and how beautifully it's portrayed in this film, but also how we have so many places where we can put ourselves in the mindset of the people who are testifying, but we never quite know what the truth is. And, you know, people play these games where, okay, whose story do you believe the most? Or who who do you think is the most real? And to me, that's 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 a fun little game to play, but that's not at all what the movie's about. Thanks. The movie's about just the opposite. It's the incredible infallibility of human memory. And I'm sure all three of us can tell stories about stories that events that happened to us or our families. And I remember it differently than my wife or my sister or my, my kids, right? Um, oh, yeah. And this movie does such a beautiful job of demonstrating that exact thing. Yeah, I've got a few of those where my my cousin, for instance, will repeatedly talk about how I was really a good cousin because I took her to uh, see Queen. Never happened. (laughs) Don't know who did. Wasn't me. (laughs) Right. 
but yeah, it's uh, and that is, and I think one of the things that's fascinating about that um, is, and I didn't really think about this until after I watched the movie. Um, when they're testifying, they're actually all performing, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, they're much more really them in the versions that we get of what happened than when they are testifying. Because when they're testifying, you know, they're very much playing up their 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 self conceptions, right? Like one of the things that I found myself thinking when I was was watching it this time was, you know, when when Mishune is testifying. Um, and he's doing that really, really exaggerated, ha, 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 laughing and jumping around. And I'm thinking, that's, but it's, it's, the, it's, it's the band that performing the extent to which he sees himself as completely not caring about the justice system or his situation or anything. Um, and it's when only afterwards saying, oh yeah, wait a minute. Yeah. All of them are, are, are being the stereotypes of themselves when they're testifying. Um, and when we're seeing the various versions of it, we're getting the, the far more um, tendentious and complex reality of what they are, because every version is probably at least somewhat accurate. Now, when he's when he's giving his when he's testifying, Mifune's yeah. character, speaking of the fallibility of, of memory, yeah, he has a rope tied around his neck, yeah. right? Uh, his waist, I think, isn't it, or is it around his neck? His waist? I go back and look. But I was looking at watching his performance. It struck me this time that it almost seemed like he was a wild animal that had to be, yeah. you know, restrained. Yeah. And his body movements seemed to seem to reinforce that impression. I thought it's very interesting. Yeah, he's what got I this thought... animalistic quality to him. I know I keep bringing up at the animal nature of characters. I think it's pretty apt, pretty apt here, right? Yeah. It's yeah. something he's played up before, though, too. It, it's part of Mifune's physicality when he performs his characters. I mean, you love him so much in Seven Samurai, for example, Dom, because he's yeah. got this kind of endless energy, right? I, my image of him in that film is, you know, bouncing up and down, knees bent, you know, all uh, ready for the next fight. One of the things that's amazing about him as an actor is he really is he he really is the full package. He can be very, very cerebral and nuanced and sophisticated and complex, but he can also totally inhabit a, a, a purely visceral, purely physical role. And that's that's really hard to have that kind of range. I mean, you know, there's lots of really, really good actors who can do all kinds of things, but to be able to like sell the action hero because you can literally actually do it, which he can, um, but also to be able to play the kinds of characters that he plays in uh the well what the heck i'm blanking on the title the 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 one with the doctor with syphilis that we just talked about i'm I, what's drunken angel drunken angel right um or the you know the very contained controlled performance of oh. the bad sleep well oh you meant uh, i'm sorry the quiet duel this quiet duel yeah um he can just you know he can uh he's not a method actor but he can sort of like out hoffman hoffman or out, or out de niro de niro on playing a really complex character, but neither of those guys could could pick up a sword and do that stuff and communicate that kind of thing. Um, it's it's exceedingly difficult to do that. Um, I can't honestly, I can't think of an American actor uh, who can with the pot or or, or or an English language actor who can, with the possible exception um, of Mel Gibson, which I know sound really politically incorrect, but I was really impressed with him in Hamlet. <laughs> Because his Hamlet was the only actual action version, action film version of Hamlet that there's ever been, 
And if you think about it, Hamlet has to be an action hero. He takes mm -hmm. on an entire pirate ship by himself, right? You can't be you cannot be the Olivier Hamlet. You cannot be the Nicol Williamson Hamlet. You cannot even be the Kenneth Branagh Hamlet and believably have single-handedly attacked a pirate ship. You can be Mel Gibson and have single-handedly attacked a pirate ship. This is a good point. Um, I mean, Mifune, having... Mifune yeah. could have single-handedly attack a pirate ship and win. Kurosawa <laughs> needs him, right? Because, you know, yeah. he... Shimura cannot do these roles either. Right? But Shimura's yeah. the soul. Mifune's kind of the body and Shimura's yeah. kind of the soul in a way for his work. Yeah, the way they... It's they, interesting they to mention that because I, I've, I often have thought that Shimura is the soul of this film. Yeah, he's only in it for I one way. It is his story. Uh, the that he's moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is his story that he's telling mm -hmm. overall. Mm -hmm. So you're actually getting a story of a story of a story. Uh, right. It has that that sort of Russian doll effect. Right. Uh, and and you, have, you have flashbacks within flashbacks within flashbacks within flashbacks at one point. <laughs> he's the one character we don't see in action in any of the flashbacks. He's this Correct. invisible character. Right. And yet he's, he's always in the, there exactly, in the background. Like, the sitting in the background. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oftentimes out of focus. Like, and yep. yet he's our POV he's, character. Right. Yep. And yet he's the POV character, interestingly enough. Out of focus and POV. It's such an... I can't think of another instance of that. Right. And the but opening of the film. Sorry, go ahead, Eric. Well, but his, his story, when you say people play games to see whose story is the most accurate. Yeah. Oftentimes, people will argue that it is his story that's probably the closest to the truth because it's yeah. the one that presents the most uh, objective of all of the viewpoints provided. However subjective it may be, it is inarguably the most objective because it's presenting all three of the other variations. It's also going on and explains the knife. Right. <laughs> Pointedly enough. <laughs> But if you think about it from the standpoint of, I don't know, imagine being, imagine there being a traffic accident. You have two parties involved, three people are are in the cars, and then there's an observer on the side of the road. The observer is right. going to have the most insight, but they're also not going to know anything. They're going to have a limited perspective on what actually happened. They it's are. Like, and yeah. It's like Einstein and relativity, right? Like if right. you're in a speeding train, and you throw a rock off the train, what you're going to see is the, the the rock rapidly receding behind you. Somebody watching from the ground, seeing you throw that rock off the train, is going to see a rock slowly moving forward with the train. Mm -hmm. um, same thing, but literally the, the rock is moving in opposite directions based on your point of view. Right. And, you know, that's, I have no idea if, if Kurosawa knew anything about, you know, Einstein and relativity and, you know, those sorts of explanations. Um, but I mean, that's what this movie is. I mean, they're not literally polar opposites, but, you know, I mean, I love the uh, the two set piece duels, right? Where uh -huh. we have, you know, the bandits version, which is the heroic bandit takes on a samurai and wins. Um, and then we have uh, Takeshi Shimura's version, which is. It's the most the pathetic fight I think only. I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. The samurai in name yeah. only, and and the and the and the cowardly bandit, um, <laughs> right? Going they can barely this. lift their swords. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which right. is 
you were talking about Hidden uh, Hidden Fortress being a comedy earlier, Eric. Rashomon is very clearly not a comedy, but that is just an amazing comic set piece in the movie, that fight between the two of them, even despite the fact of, of how it ends. It kind of reminded me of the pathetic fight at the end of Drunken Angel, to be quite honest. Or even Stray Dog. Yeah, yeah. Stray yeah. Dog's yeah. one that I thought of, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, again, one of the things that I often find impressive about Kurosawa is he can certainly do those elaborately staged fights that are carefully choreographed. But he's also well aware that you know violence is often much more messy than that, right? Um, and I well, mean, even the first the version. Sorry, go it's ahead. Not the romant- well, yeah, I mean, it's it's not the romanticized version of yeah. it. Like, yeah, the difference between like a fight in cinema and then yeah. a fight in the schoolyard. Yeah, it's two completely different things, right? Well, if we think about the big set piece fight in Hidden Fortress, right? They yeah. have the fight. It, yeah. It's dramatic and exciting, but it ends up kind of boomeranging on on them right it, it turns out to be a terrible idea to have had this duel uh and you're you know to, to bring up seven samurai right i mean the battle happens the villagers are okay but then what happens it's a, it's a kind of in a way an empty victory yeah uh, even even that film mixes the the highly choreographed super stage stuff with with fighting that just looks like a like like a melee right like some of those scenes where the bandits come riding in, and you see like the you know the 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 peasants and the samurai sort of swarming around them and kind of like running in at the horses and waving their swords and running away, and it doesn't have the kind of um, you know uh, extremely posed and well what you get in superhero movies right one of the things that drives me nuts right you know Superman or someone arrives but when they arrive. They have to spend like 45 minutes landing and landing in a pose and then going <laughs> through all these things. Um, and, you know, they'll punch someone and they'll like pause. Oh, look at me. And they'll punch someone else. Um, you don't get that kind of bullshit. Uh, pardon my French. Um, or you almost never get that kind of stuff in Kurosawa. You certainly get very carefully staged fights. Um, but even the most carefully staged ones always have that that under, you know, underpinning of what the reality is you know the, the quintessential version for me probably is the the duel in seven samurai which is initially just you know we're, we're, we're just practicing right and the one guy says no no i, I won let's I'll, I'll prove it to you we'll, we'll do it again for real okay you're dead boom right mm-hmm. uh and uh that's a pretty hard ending a pretty hard way to learn the lesson um but yeah that's you know in this film uh even even the first one, which is the bandits version of "Look at me, I'm a," is very different from the second. But even that one isn't uh, isn't just a dance, right? It's it's got lots of um, nuance to it, meat to it. Now I want to rewatch it. <laughs> He's Sorry. very Kurosawa clearly doesn't believe in heroism in the way mm-hmm. traditional Japan believed in heroism. Yeah, I mean, so much of his filmography comes back to his his life really comes back to the shattering experiences he had in world war ii yeah and how he saw society destroyed by all the motivations that got the country into the war i mean we we even see it we we see it in the shifting viewpoints in this film too you, you can imagine this already being this post-war apologistic uh, approach to things and the same way we see post january 6th with people yeah. justifying and explaining out and uh, doing everything they can to minimize their own uh, guilt, right? And that's part of the yeah. whole thing with the with the 
changing stories is like, well, maybe someone is, they know someone committed the rape, for example, but uh, no one is willing to, t- to to step up and tell the truth because of ramifications. So yeah. you're pointing to is agendas mm-hmm. and the Japanese agenda or uh, the American occupation agenda, everybody had skin in the game. They were all trying to manipulate the system to get what it is that they wanted out of uh, out of the situation in post-war Japan. There was all sorts of chicanery and corruption taking place within the Japanese government. And, and you know, the Japanese people, including Kurosawa, can help to be a witness to that. And it seems to me that this film, we've talked about the fallibility of memory and the diff- the difficulty of being ob- entirely objective. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason for that is that each of us has in our own descriptions of reality an agenda at play, whether it's conscious or not. Yeah. And and that is, seems to be what is being addressed here in this film most pronouncedly. I would say each of the characters their version of the events is an expression of whatever agenda it is that they're seeking, that they're pursuing. Um, And what's most interesting to me is that they're all essentially admitting guilt. Yeah. None of them is pretending to be innocent of the crime. They're all actually absorbing. uh, Well, obviously the, the, the woman can't absorb the crime of the rape because, you know, she was raped, but I mean, they're all more or less taking responsibility for what happened because each of them has some agenda at work that they're trying to see through, that they're trying to convince the the judges of it. Actually, more importantly, trying to convince themselves of it. Ah, there you it's go. It's not so much yeah. that they're trying to lie to the 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 judges or the the investigators uh, who are interviewing them. They're lying to themselves. It's the self-justifications, yes. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. And it brings me back to one of the one of the things that I, I it always really strikes me. And I, I'm not sure how many times I've watched this film, but one of the things that always really strikes me is that in the wife's version of the story, there's a lacuna, right? Mm. I was walking towards him with the knife, and the next thing I knew, I was lying on the ground and the knife was sticking in his chest. Right. Yeah. Which is I mean, that's pretty thin, even if it's really what happened. That's the sort of thing somebody tells yeah. the police when they, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right? get out of um, right. And that, that really, that really nailed, I think was what you were just talking about, Eric, sort of nails on the head that this is not just about, you know, well, things were so muddled, I don't remember exactly what happened. It's, I have a retrospective reconstruction of this, uh, this event that, I, that has to align with my sense of who I am. Um, and that's whether exactly they're, it. yeah, whether they're conscious of the, whether they're lying or not, I, it's, that's a really interesting question. I mean, does, does, you know, how much does she really believe that story? Um, how much does the dead samurai really believe? I, you know, I, I did the honorable thing. I was, I was shamed and humiliated. And the only honorable choice I had was to take my own life. You know, part of you says, well, he's a ghost. Why would he lie about it? <laughs> On the other hand, well, you know, he's the, he's the ghost of a samurai, and we all the versions of the story suggest that he's pretty clearly a guy with a very um, deeply entrenched sense of ego. Um, right. You know, maybe he'd rather believe he'd rather believe that that's what he did. 
then yeah, you'd rather then, believe yeah. that he did the honorable thing and he would uh, yeah. you would rather believe that she you know that she uh offended his honor yeah by her behavior and Mifune would rather believe that he you know bested the samurai and and won the girl yeah and not only bested the samurai but didn't actually rape her right because he starts right. out but in his version she very clearly has one of those i mean we know it's bullshit in reality but one of those no 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 oh yes please things right <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um yeah and it's you know that's part of it right is you know that's how you rationalize doing it well she really wanted it right you know and then her sense of shame about the situation compels her to you know uh demand yeah. that mifune you know kill her husband yeah because yeah. otherwise yeah. you know it's just, yeah. right I agree with what we're getting at here, which is I these are the people who are just seeing the world in such a mindset that uh, they believe these things to be true because they've set up not even rationalization, just the the interpretation in their own heads is long is that way. It, yeah. it, it reflects their their innate prejudices, their innate and even Shimura, the world. And even Shimura is supposed to be the most objective character. You know, that other bandit at the end of the film mm-hmm. calls him out on it and says, you know, well, you know, you stole that pearl handled knife. You know, you're you're just you're just justifying your story as well, just as much as they're justifying their own. Well, yeah. So- and you, it's easy to it's easy to conclude that his must be the truest because he's got less skin in the game. Right. But on the other hand, he's also got, you know, it's a pretty clear. Hey, he's got a pretty, pretty clear um perspective on what he thinks of bandits and what he thinks of samurais <laughs> um and b as the as the other band that points out to him he's got his own little secret to keep mm-hmm. right uh so yeah um but on the other hand he he probably is the most like sympathetic character in the film he is but kurosawa was very careful to undercut his his uh, authority early mm-hmm. in the film because he lies to the investigators and essentially or well, yeah. he's lying to the bandit, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, and to the monk who's there at Rashomon yeah. Gate with him, yeah. uh, and says that he didn't see the crime that he showed up afterwards and just found, you know, the 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 two bodies. But then, in his later in the film, it's mm-hmm. revealed that he actually witnessed uh, the fight that occurred yeah. between the the samurai and 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 Mifune. So, you know, Kurosawa is very cleverly sort of suggesting that he's just as much of a fabricator as the uh, other three uh, narrators of the film. Yeah, and also, um, I mean, I think an interesting point in relationship to that is the way the film requires us to change our own perspectives as the information changes, right? right? Like at the end of the film, when oh i have six kids of my own one more won't make much of a difference it's like okay new fact <laughs> and <laughs> it uh, this 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 changes everything again i mean it's, it's one thing to say well you know geez you watch somebody be murdered and you couldn't didn't want to get involved yeah well i got six kids to raise at home that gives you a more compelling reason but he never even offers that as an excuse he doesn't say you know i have to I have responsibilities. I have people I have to take care of. I, I couldn't put myself in, in the risky position of, you know, having bandits take vengeance on me or whatever. He just said, I didn't want to get involved, which comes across as, as callow and antisocial and, 
you know, the, the standard, the standard thing that we're seeing all the time, right? You know, the whole Kitty Genovese kind of thing, right? You let terrible things happen because you just couldn't be bothered. Uh, There's also the moral ambiguity of stealing the, the of like, taking the yeah. blade because, yeah. Yeah. you know, you, you, you sort of extrapolate that and you think, well, what, what use does he have for that? He's mm -hmm. probably going to sell it so mm -hmm. that he can get food for his family, you know? Yeah. We don't know does, he, does, he, does he say that in the film? I can't. I can't recall. No, I don't, I, I don't think he does. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not even sure he explicitly admits stealing it. Stealing it. It's more like the look on the face where the bandit right. says, "You That's took right, it, right. didn't you?" And yeah. so even there, we don't have an, we don't have an acknowledgement. We just we have to read his expression, right, and, and reach that conclusion. Which again is, <laughs> and we also have to read his We also have to read his motivation as well. Yeah. yeah. Because Kurosawa withholds that. Yeah, and that's that's again the brilliance of Kurosawa in using what you're looking at. You have to watch a Kurosawa mm -hmm. film. Um, you can't just listen to the dialogue. I mean, that's one of the one of the things that so many films think they have, they, make, they have to make sure that they spell everything out to the audience. Someone has to say it, so you know the audience gets it, right? You know, Kurosawa's got a lot more faith in his audience than that. Probably a lot more faith in himself, frankly. <laughs> Did you notice how little dialogue there was in this film? I mean, at times it oh, felt yeah, like it was yeah. a, silent, a silent movie. Yeah. Oh, there the long sequences where there's no talking, yeah. That five-minute sequence at, at the very beginning of the film where he's running through the forest and we get the filtered light through the trees. Mm -hmm. Oh, God, what a beautiful shot. Yeah. Is it I, true? Is it true? I, may I interject? This is the first time the sun appears on, on screen in a film? I couldn't believe that. One of the things Alton I was reading is that, that it's, yeah. it's the first time that someone was able successfully to shoot directly into the sun. Yeah, is that true? From what I understand, yeah, apparently wow. so. Interesting that he, that he figured out a way to do it. Yeah, and so it's, it's technically innovative, innovative as well. And that, yeah. that's one of the things that I had trouble understanding. And I started thinking, we're only twenty years into the sound era. Cameras yeah, right. are still massively enormous things at this point. Yep. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there were a lot of things that cameras literally couldn't do. Yeah. Um, and this film also has a lot of use of handheld camera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah which it was does. quite innovative for the time. Right. Uh, and I think so, it was easier. A lot of it was filmed, you know, out in the wilderness. It wasn't on a stage. Mm -hmm. And at that time, it was, correct me if I'm wrong, it was certainly much easier to use a handheld camera than it was a stationary camera. It would have been, yeah, I would think. Yeah, right. I just wonder how heavy those cameras must have been to have professional quality film in them. They they must have been, you know, the size of my monitor here only ten times as heavy. Wasn't I? I think this is a totally different context. And Eric, I think you might be able to know more about this. I think you know a lot more about uh, Fastbender than I do. But wasn't that one of the real Not challenges much. he had shooting uh, uh, Fitzcarraldo was getting the goddamn cameras in there because they were so bulky? Oh, oh you're talking about Herzog. Yeah, Herzog. Sorry, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, right. Getting the the cameras in and out of the jungle. Yeah, and I mean that's like what 30, 40 years after Rashomon. Right. Right. So it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Greatest yeah, first hour rain scene too. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and and this was his first um, period picture since nineteen forty five since before the end of the war. So this was the first time that he was allowed because there was that post-war period that I mentioned previously where they weren't allowed to do any 
period pictures, uh, particularly anything that was uh, had to do with the samurai. Yeah. And oh, uh, right. So this was the first this was the first film that he did after that. That post-war ban was lifted. It, it actually is his first samurai film. Now that I look at it, he had done No, no Regrets for Our Youth, which is a historical drama. Um, but this is the first film he created that was uh, what we think of as the the uh, Kurosawa samurai films. Sanshiro Sugata were was film was took place in the eighteen nineties or so, around mm-hmm. the arrival of of right. Um, mm-hmm. Wasn't there another one? The the men who catch the tiger's tail. Or That's after like this. That. I no, that was in forty five. According to the men, the men who cut on tiger's tails. Yeah. I thought that was an earlier film. No, that was a, a wartime film. It's Rashomon and then The Idiot and then Tiger's Tale. Really? Yeah, according oh. to Letterboxd anyway. And then Akira okay. Samurai, I Live in Fear. Oh, I don't have it in front of me, but I, I was sure that that, was, that, had, that came out before Rashomon. I mean, it was a big genre in Japan at the time, but no, no, this is... Yeah. So... Well, in any case, it was. I think that was, just reinforces your point, Eric. Yeah, it just inaugurated that very. Uh, well, according to that that reliable source, uh, *Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail* was 1945. Right. Oh, okay. Perhaps I'm wrong. That's what it. That's what that might have been when it got international release. It might have been released outside of Japan later. It's possible. Yeah, given the success of *Rashomon*, because that was this big breakthrough film in the United States, actually internationally. This was the film that launched him into that hallowed status as the international filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, here we go. I flipped down. Um, it was shot in 1945, but was not released in Japan until 1952. Okay. Ah, interesting. Okay. Oh. So technically it was his first samurai film. I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> there's no there's no detailed story there. It just says Japanese censors failed to give a file on the film to the censors of the Supreme Commander of the Allied Powers. Thus, 1945's The Men Who Tread on the Tiger's Tail was banned as an illegal, unreported production, it was not released ah, until 1952. Very it also interesting. Explains why it's so short. Okay, that's very interesting. That just an hour. Yeah, long it's film. like it's, it's an under an hour long. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I can't wait to review that one. That'll be interesting. <laughs> On the other hand, it's also it's set in the 12th century, which makes it like pretty early At, in terms yeah. of historical periods. Yeah, and then technically, I think that's what maybe before samurai, right? I, I certainly before what you think of as the standard uh, samurai time period. Right. Yeah, right. Which but I mean, I've like never. Yeah. Adventure. So probably right around the time of the beginnings of it, I would think. Yeah, I've never seen Very that one, so I, I don't know anything about it. I literally all I know about is what I just read to you from the Wikipedia page. <laughs> okay, it's one of the very one of only five I haven't seen by him so far. So I'll get back. So to what that. what do you what what do you guys think? I mean. It's, to to your lights, does Rashomon achieve? Does it legitimately deserve the praise that it's received as one of the greatest films ever made? Um, if we're saying one of the greatest films ever made, I would unreservedly say yes. I agree. But it's not even my favorite Kurosawa film. So if you wanted to say it was the best, I'd have to argue with you. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I I agree with that too. I mean. I've been rating these films as I go along. It's clearly a five-star film. Like, there's no question. This is this is the epitome of a five-star film. It's rich thematically. It's got brilliant characters. It's got outstanding camera work. 
It's very well written. Uh, in every way, it's a five-star film, right? But do I like it more than Seven Samurai or Kiru or The Bad Sleep Well or High and Low? I'm not sure I do. Um, and I think part of the reason for me is that it is a little more unconventional. Mm-hmm. There is no... The, po- the whole point of the movie is there's nothing that you land on as um, the you know the hero, the villain, positive, the negative. It, it's a film that li- exists in this strong gray space, which is beautifully powerful and fascinating to watch. But you, it la- it lacks this kind of I don't know. It, it, it's so unconventional. It, it's a little hard for me to love it. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about this question, actually, because I thought it might actually be something we ended up talking about, because it does have that reputation. And for me, I, I would I would put it in one of those, the category of, you know, there are things that you can say, I, can, I really can admire that and recognize the brilliancy of it. Um, but it doesn't have the same, you know, that, that visceral impact on me that some other things would have. And this, Eric, maybe Jason too, you might sympathize, might, might feel the same way. One of the, I'm a huge Cronenberg fan. And yeah. I think Spider is a brilliant film, mm-hmm. but I feel very little compulsion to rewatch it. Yeah. We just Whereas I can watch Vineyard Room over and over again. It's more of an intellectual film, right? Yeah, yeah. It's more of an intellectual film, right? Yeah. Whereas yeah. Seventh Samurai affects you on oh, for multiple sure, yeah. levels, right? Your yeah. your mind your 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 soul, you know. Um, yeah. It, it Rashomon to me is it's almost like an intellectual exercise. It's brilliant. yeah. It's like a, it's like a thesis film, right? You know, it, it is. Yeah and, yeah, and the characters are representational. Yeah. Of their their symbols, you know, their 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 stand-ins for for themes, if you will. They don't they don't live in in the same way that say the characters in seven seven samurai live come Absolutely, to life yeah. yeah or uh even hidden fortress yeah. for example oh, yeah. uh, so so it's very difficult for me to get attached to this film beyond simply that you know admiration for its technical you know uh mastery uh of of cinema uh admiration for its exploration of some pretty heavy themes and and really incisive exploration of, of pretty heavy themes and it's not it doesn't come across as an essay or you know no, uh, it's, not, it's not polemical your, right yeah. it's not polemical uh it, it's all show very little tell mm-hmm. um and it's brilliant on that level it but does it you know does it speak to me beyond that and i have to say you know not not really <laughs> it's it's um it's kind of a cold film in a way yeah and a part a part of that is inevitable given what it's about i mean a film right. that is about the unknowability and the plasticity and the constructedness of character is not likely to have right. characters in it that you really get connected to yeah right right because you're always aware of their artifice yeah. And, there, and so there's always that there's there's always that intermediary position between you and the character. Yeah. Which and it's is the story that the characters are are telling. Yeah. 
So it's hard to get absorbed in the story when there's no story ostensibly to get absorbed into. <laughs> yeah, and basically where you're being reminded throughout the film right. that that this is a story that we are looking at multiple versions of this, um, and so you you don't you, it's it's you can't have what Coleridge called the suspension of disbelief with this right. movie because one of the requirements of this movie is in fact that you don't believe right. any of the stories right um i mean it's in some ways it's kind of postmodern from that point of view yes yeah it's uh, a great postmodern before postmodernism yeah. right and right. again i'm not a huge postmodernism enthusiast so no but it's there right i mean oh yeah it's certainly more self-aware than just a straightforward a fable would be which is maybe what this is closest to yeah storytelling wise yeah which is certainly what the writer of the story was uh i, I forget his name akutagawa yeah who wrote the story, the story? That i have yeah and it's oh. surprisingly brief it's it's mm -hmm. only about a seven page story i mean maybe oh two huh. three thousand words long it's it's incredibly compact uh so Kurosawa does like incredible job fleshing the story out. It's just sort of like um, hints toward what Rashomon the film is. It's almost like a, it's almost like a Cliff's Notes version of it, <laughs> <laughs> to borrow a worn phrase. But nevertheless, he was a post-war writer who was utilizing. Um, Japanese folklore and Japanese fables from pre-war to explore post-war themes. Uh, he, you know, and he was incredible at it. And I think that's what most struck Kurosawa about what it is that he wanted to do. He wanted to explore it. Now, keep in mind that when he developed this film, he was still operating under this ban. And so you couldn't be overly explicit about right. things. Yeah. You know, can make a polemical film about the political situation in Japan. So you had to sort of disguise it within, you know, um, what is on its surface, something entirely different. So yeah. I think that's what attracted to him to Akutagawa's, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, but uh, story, which is called In a Grove. Yeah. Uh, I highly recommend you guys read it if you're if you're fans of the short story form. It's, it's a really a remarkable short story, but uh, certainly not nearly as brilliant as Kurosawa's film. So one of those rituals where the film improves on its source material. Yeah, those are few and far between. It, it's in a way ironic. The film that gave him the most fame, the film that broke him, is the film that might be the most different from the rest of his films. Yeah, interestingly enough, the two movies that we chose to talk about, I think, are are both kind of outliers <laughs> yeah in very There's different no, ways no other film that's why i wanted to bring them together because i couldn't possibly think of any other movies to combine them with. <laughs> <laughs> both... yeah they worked they work well interestingly well together from that point of view as yeah. sort of um, anomalous films mm -hmm. I, I keep coming back to both are just filmed gorgeously mm. Just the cinematography on both is, you know, as good as it gets for this era. Yeah, yeah. Kurosawa's visual command is second to none, I think, really. And I'm even trying to think of like, oh, in like a non, 
any sort of American or European film circa 1950 that even has this level of beauty or complexity to it. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of movies that are filmed post-war, but uh, nothing with quite the the whole the richness of this one. I would say yeah. Opals probably came close to Kurosawa in the same period, visually speaking. Yeah, there are just aren't, there aren't that many real visual geniuses the way he is, though. I mean, Kubrick is, but much later. I mean, I guess he started yeah. then, but Maybe Hitchcock, Orson, Orson Wells kind maybe? of is. Wells, yeah, yeah Wells, Wells is yeah. the is the easy comp, yeah. I would say, yeah, but thinking, you know, give me Kurosawa or Wells any day to be perfectly honest. <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> that's a whole so other certainly more consistently yeah. great body <laughs> yeah. of work. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, I mean, there's certainly plenty of you know, films and directors from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s that I love um, and that often look beautiful. I mean, John Ford shot some beautiful looking films. Uh-huh. He was a but, major influence on Kurosawa. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they, his his films, they, he, he can he can he can get the uh, grandeur and the scope and the sense of, you know, space that Kurosawa mm-hmm. captures. But he doesn't get the density and the nuance that Kurosawa gets. He doesn't make the same masterly use of cinema space in, in terms of the organization of everything that you're seeing the way that Kurosawa does. And I, I know I, I have this something that I, I keep coming back to and coming back to and coming back to, but you know, it's just something that Kurosawa thought about, I think a lot more than most directors do. I think most directors is why do we put the camera so that we can get the coverage? <laughs> right. Right. Whereas for Kurosawa is where do the actors have to be in relationship to each other to communicate what I want communicated? <laughs> to to place them in in relationship to the objects that i want them in relationship to so that the movement is going to work so that it all flows and i go back to that scene that we were talking about when we talked about kegamusha and the scene where the 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 sniper is explaining how he lined up the shot and it's just completely mechanical you you line it up then you have the plumb rod that goes out of the ground you know exactly how far it is you know exactly where you have to angle it and then you hit it every time and that's that's the way kurosawa makes films i think and I don't think really many other directors do. Oh, I do have another comp. Now that I'm looking at my list of 1950s films I've seen, which is Jean Cocteau. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or- Orpheus was 1950. Yeah, that's Cocteau, a really one. Definitely. You know, in terms of the, the commercial directors, I'm looking at my list here. Um, Hitchcock was still forming himself. Nicholas Ray did uh, In a Lonely Place. Oh, that's a beautiful has a beautiful film, sense yeah. of place. Yeah. yeah. And some gorgeous black and white cinematography. So yeah, maybe Kurosawa isn't a kind of the outlier that I was first presenting him as. There's some absolutely gorgeous films filmed around this time. Uh, I'm not sure that anyone else was doing it as consistently as he was, but Jules Dassin did Thieves Highway in '49. That's also a beautiful looking film. I wondered uh, to what extent the fact that he's Japanese, that he had a Japanese sensibility, contributed yeah. to his sense of space and symmetry and form and all of those considerations. I mean, I'm sure you could write a book about Japanese aesthetics and their expression in Kurosawa's film. Sorry, I just gave you a title. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Versus say Ford, you know, uh, and and also just like also the cinematic eye, like the perspective and how Ford is uh, arguably has, has a more individualistic perspective whereas kurosawa has a bit more of a communally perspective films 
there there tends to be i think in in you know ron is a perfect example of that and rashomon as well but ron also has you know there's several different viewpoints in that in that film major viewpoints in that film and he's able to balance them you know so so perfectly that Mm -hmm. one doesn't overwhelm the other and they all sort of act in concert with one another and complement one another one of the reasons i just adore that movie Mm -hmm. yeah 